The Matrix isn't some far-off, futuristic possibility or idea. It doesn't describe some wild, speculative science fiction scenario. We're already living in the Matrix. Now granted, some people are more plugged into the digital zeitgeist than others. But most people, it seems like nowadays, spend most of their time plugged into the internet, to social media, to Reddit forums, to Xbox Live, to YouTube. We're constantly embedded in virtual worlds. And the distinction between what's real and what's virtual seems to be becoming increasingly blurred. And this has led to a kind of disillusion of reality. A sense that everything is a video game. That everything feels like the movies. That nothing feels real anymore. Because we're constantly shifting back and forth between the real world and the virtual world. And in this process, it's easy to lose track on what's real. One fear that I have is that with the advent of sophisticated virtual reality technologies, we might just choose to check out of the real world altogether. I want to talk about virtual reality technology in this episode and express some of my philosophical concerns associated with this emerging technology. So I'm sure that most listeners have at least an intuitive sense as to what virtual reality is. It describes a three-dimensional computer-generated environment which can be explored and interacted with by a person. I think it's helpful to distinguish in conceptual space between virtual reality and augmented reality, because these aren't one and the same thing. I was recently reading a paper by authors Milgram and Kishno from 1994. I forget their first names. But they present this concept of a reality-virtuality continuum. And I think this is a helpful conceptual framework to play with. So on one end of the continuum, you have just normal, technologically non-augmented physical reality. And then on the other end of the continuum, you have complete virtual reality, which again involves total virtual immersion. When I enter a VR simulation, I completely exit the real world and enter a three-dimensional modeled virtual world. Now, as you move from one end of this continuum, to the other end, towards complete virtual immersion, there are two stops along the way. The first stop is augmented reality. Now, augmented reality describes a technology which allows users to superimpose digital objects onto their perception. So it essentially combines virtual reality and physical reality. Some popular contemporary examples of augmented reality include the game Pokemon Go, which took the world by storm, a few years back. Also, Snapchat has some really intriguing augmented reality features. So augmented reality is itself an interesting technology, but it's not going to be what I'm focusing on in this episode. As you move further along the continuum towards complete virtual reality, there's one more stop, and that's what the authors call augmented virtuality. Augmented virtuality is just the inverse of augmented reality. If augmented reality involves integrating digital data into the real world, augmented virtuality involves integrating real-world data into a virtual environment. So we're talking about someone who's plugged into a VR simulation and is receiving some kind of real-world feedback. So there's an entire history behind virtual reality, obviously, which I don't want to get into excruciating detail here. But it's worth saying a few things about this history. One interesting 
prelude to virtual reality occurred in the 1950s. A man, and I'm going to butcher his name, Morton Helgage, worked in the Hollywood motion picture industry. And he wrote about this idea of an experienced theater, right? A kind of full-bodied movie experience, which would engage all of the five senses. So he was essentially envisioning a kind of crude prototype to what we now call virtual reality. And he actually built a prototype of this device that he was envisioning in 1956, which he called the Sensorama. This was a completely mechanical device as it came before the age of computing. But Insofar as I understand it, it was a pretty innovative adv- device for its time. The Sensorama allowed you to simulate the experience of riding through a city on a motorcycle. And you could hear and see and feel the vibrations of the motorcycle, and you could even apparently smell the motorcycle's exhaust. Fast forward to 1968, and you have a man named Ivan Sutherland and his research team developing the first head mounted display that could be used to create immersive virtual experiences. This was again an extremely primitive device, both in terms of the level of visual realism that it facilitated and in terms of the interface itself. It's my understanding that this head-mounted display, it was so heavy that it had to be hung from the ceiling. So again, a pretty primitive precursor to contemporary virtual reality machines, but still a significant innovation. I was reading about how in the mid-1980s, a man named Jaron Lanier was actually the first person to coin the term virtual reality, and he founded a company called VPL Research, which created all the different materials necessary to facilitate the virtual reality experience, goggles, gloves, and other gear. And fast forward to today, and you have the popular contemporary virtual reality systems, which have taken a hold and the popular imagination of the people. Systems like Oculus Quest, Sony PlayStation VR, Google Cardboard, the HTC Vive. All of these contemporary virtual reality systems are becoming more and more lifelike. And they're trending towards creating experiences which are indistinguishable from real life. We're essentially in the process of building matrix machines. I think most people commonly associate virtual reality with its application in entertainment. They envision using VR to play some hyper-realistic video game. And this is certainly one application of the technology, but VR also is poised to have beneficial applications in many different sectors of the economy. Given that I'm about to articulate a bunch of philosophical worries that I have surrounding the technology, I think it's worth emphasizing a lot of the positive upside that the technology possesses. So just to give a few examples, in the field of medicine, virtual reality can allow doctors to practice surgery in a simulated environment with no real-life consequences. They can hone their surgery skills without any possibility of someone getting hurt if something goes wrong. Similarly, in the military and law enforcement training, Police officers or military members can use VR to simulate dangerous situations which allow them to prepare for these dangerous situations in real life. I know that police 
are already using virtual reality tools from the company Vertra as a training tool for their officers. Also, when you're just talking about education, right? Virtual reality technology allows students to go on virtual field trips and have extremely realistic, immersive educational experiences. I think that education as it's currently constituted involves a lot of rote fact retention. You have students being asked to memorize a bunch of facts from textbooks and then essentially mindlessly regurgitate those facts on tests. And I think that this model of education is largely outdated in the 21st century, in the information age. And I think that virtual reality might play a significant role in our vision for the future of education. Also, really any industry which involves design can benefit immensely from virtual reality technology. For example, in the fashion industry, virtual simulations of store environments can allow retailers to play with different design structures before fully committing to one or before buying an expensive prototype. And on the fashion point, virtual reality might soon allow people to virtually try on clothes while engaging in online shopping. One of the drawbacks of online shopping, as it currently exists, is that you can't actually try on the clothes that you're interested in buying. You'd have to go to the store for that. But in the future, you might be able to plug into some virtual store environment, which allows you to try on the clothes that you're looking at buying online. So when and if virtual reality shopping becomes a thing, I think that the existence of physical malls will be made completely obsolete. I know that the European retailer ASOS has already invested in virtual reality shopping. So this could be the future of online shopping. Also, if you're just talking about art, virtual reality opens up a whole new realm of artistic possibilities that previously didn't exist for artists and creators. The app Tilt Brush, for example, is a virtual reality app which allows you to paint in virtual worlds. And a few others I'll mention. Real estate. Instead of in-person house tours, you might be able to engage in house tours from the luxury of your own home just by plugging into a virtual reality space that perfectly simulates the interior of the real-world house that you're looking at buying. I know that the company Matterport is leading the way here on virtual reality in the realm of real estate. Another interesting app that I was looking at is the app called Guided Meditation VR, which is a VR app which promotes mental health and psychological well-being. It allows users to immerse themselves in meditative spaces to help facilitate mindfulness. So if I plug into the app, I might suddenly find myself by a tranquil stream with meditative music playing in the background. And this kind of environment might, again, promote mental health. So those are just a few industries that are poised to be positively impacted by the uptake of virtual reality technology. So I'd be remiss if I didn't mention the coronavirus pandemic and how it figures into this discussion. As you know, the coronavirus pandemic has largely atomized society, and it's made a lot of businesses realize that many real-world interactions that we used to engage in are really inessential from a business perspective. 
A lot of stuff that we previously did in person, we now realize can be done online. And I think that this general societal realization sparked by the coronavirus pandemic might lead to a greater uptake of virtual reality technology. Perhaps virtual reality is the future of communication, and people will increasingly interact in shared virtual reality spaces as opposed to in person. For example, maybe a business will decide that it doesn't need to spend the money on a real-world office. Instead, it can just have its employees plug into some shared virtual office from the luxury of their homes. And maybe in the long run, physical travel will become less and less common and will gradually be supplanted by virtual travel. I was recently watching an interview with Mark Zuckerberg, and he said something that stood out to me. He said that it's much easier to move around bits than it is to move around atoms in the 21st century. And he used this as a justification for Facebook focusing on developing virtual reality and augmented reality technologies. He was talking about how he wants to create technologies which allow people to feel present to one another despite being physically remote. And obviously there are already technologies that allow for this. Zoom, for example. But augmented and virtual reality technology would allow people to feel even more present to one another, despite being physically remote. So maybe instead of focusing on building things like Elon Musk's Hyperloop idea, which allows for physical travel at much higher speeds, we should instead be focusing on creating technologies which facilitate virtual travel. And going along with this point, virtual reality might also be the future of social media. In the future, we might have what you might call virtual social media, which would allow us to break out of this kind of crude, two-dimensional way of interacting with one another on contemporary social media platforms. And this might be a good thing, because I think that the two-dimensional way in which we currently interact with one another on social media can lead to a lot of societal problems. If I'm just reading a tweet that someone sent on the screen of my iPhone, it's easy to misinterpret what they're trying to say. It's easy to dehumanize others when you're just reading their tweets and you're not actually engaging with them in person. It's easy for there to be bad faith interactions given the current structure of engagement on social media. So maybe virtual reality will allow us to engage with one another on social media in more of a full embodied manner. And this will solve a lot of these problems that we're currently experiencing with social media. Or maybe that's a naive thought, I don't know. But it's worth mentioning that social media is already headed in this direction with the recent popularity of shared audio virtual uh, shared audio social media spaces like Clubhouse. Clubhouse is an app that's recently skyrocketed in popularity. And it's essentially audio social media. It allows people to talk with one another in an audio format on social media platforms. What I'm calling virtual social media is really just the next logical step from audio social media. And there are already many apps that are creating social communities in virtual reality spaces. Apps like Oculus Rooms and High Fidelity. And in these shared virtual reality spaces, you can be embodied as a virtual avatar. So I now want to shift gears and raise some philosophical concerns that I have with virtual reality. One kind of generic concern 
which isn't even particular to VR, is hacking. As it is with other technologies, virtual reality is in danger of being hacked. Another kind of simple concern is just what you might call user protection. The fact that we don't want people with VR headsets bumping into walls in the physical world. A more serious concern can be encapsulated by what you might call desensitization. The idea that the hyper-realistic experiences that virtual reality facilitates might desensitize people to certain real-world experiences that they shouldn't be desensitized to. So this desensitization concern is already talked about in society as it relates to other things. For example, people will talk about how pornography and violent video games can desensitize people. If you're constantly watching pornography, you might become sexually desensitized. Or if you're constantly playing violent video games, you might become desensitized to real-world violence. And I have to say, I do think that this desensitization concern is a pressing issue in society already. But particularly as it relates to social media, right? So just put the pornography, violent video game aspect of it aside and just think about social media. Social media and the online attention economy select for the most sensationalistic content. Content that provokes outrage or other emotions, that's always the content that goes viral. If something horrific happens on the other side of the world and someone videos it, that video might just appear in my timeline whether I want it to or not. So, given that people are perpetually plugged into the digital zeitgeist, they're constantly bombarded by sensationalistic news stories. And I think that this has desensitized people in a profound way. It's almost as if people have seen everything in the social media age, in the internet age, that nothing shocks them anymore. Nothing is shocking. And that's not necessarily a good thing. There are some things that should be shocking to people. You shouldn't, you shouldn't fail to be shocked by another school shooting when and if it happens. But in a world where school shootings are becoming more and more prominent, people become desensitized to the genuinely shocking nature of these events. And that's not necessarily a healthy psychological state to be in. So I do think that this is a problem. And there's also a sense in which people are living their entire lives on social media that they forget or they lose track on what's real. Right? They're constantly documenting their own lives and living in a kind of self-manufactured Truman show where in their own minds, they're the protagonists in some movie, they're the main character in some video game, and along the way, they increasingly don't live in the real world, or they increasingly fail to see the real world as real. I think that so-called LARPing, live-action role-playing, has become more and more prominent in society, right? where people are behaving in ways in the real world would suggest that they don't realize that what they're doing is real. And I don't think this is a small point. Life isn't a video game where you can just reboot the game and start over from your last save point. Life doesn't work like that. And for the generation that's grown up on social media 
and that has lived in these fictional and virtual worlds for practically their entire life, it's easy to forget that the real world has real consequences to it. So I do think that for all of these reasons, this kind of desensitization worry is already, again, a pressing worry. And I do think that virtual reality threatens to exacerbate the worry by allowing for hyper-realistic experiences. So that's one issue. Another issue or concern that I have with virtual reality relates to post-traumatic stress disorder. In a lot of ways, this is the flip side of the desensitization concern that I was just articulating. VR experiences can be so lifelike and intense that they can trigger real PTSD within users. So that's definitely an issue. And related to this issue is the possibility of using virtual reality as a torture device. So there's a whole discussion to be had about the ethics of torture, generally speaking. And I don't really want to have that discussion here. People will concoct some scenario where there's a bomb in the middle of a city that's about to be detonated, and they've captured the terrorist that knows where the bomb is. And the question arises, is it morally okay to torture this terrorist if there's a possibility that the terrorist will disclose the relevant information and allow us to save millions of lives? Is torture ever okay, even in a situation like that? So that's a discussion, but the question that I pose here is, regardless of how you feel about the ethics of torture, generally speaking, do you think that using VR as a torture device is ethically better, ethically worse, or ethically on par with physical torture? In a lot of ways, I think that virtual reality as a torture device might be ethically worse, because the virtual reality technology opens up possibilities for suffering that don't exist in the real world. Imagine that I'm in some virtual reality simulation, I'm embodied as a virtual avatar of some sort, and the creator of the simulation chooses to cut off my arm, and I experience the pain as if my arm is being cut off, even though in the real world my arm's completely intact. And then the creator of the simulation chooses to re-simulate my arm and then cut it off again, and then re-simulate it and cut it off again, right? So you can see how this kind of suffering is just not possible in the real world. If you've seen the show Black Mirror, Black Mirror has a bunch of different episodes which explore the possibility of using VR as a kind of torture device. Just to give one example, in an episode called White Christmas, you have the deployment of limited virtual reality simulations, which function as particularly cruel implementations of solitary confinement. Where so, so the idea is someone is placed within this limited VR simulation where they're the only person in the simulation. And they might spend a thousand years in that simulation and go insane in the process. And what's really interesting is the subjective sense of time within the simulation is different than the sense of time in the outside world. So 1,000 years spent in the simulation might correspond to just one hour of time elapsed in the real world. So I won't go into further detail because I don't want to give away any spoilers, but you can see how virtual reality can be used as a particularly cruel torture machine. And related to this is the possibility of what you might call virtual crimes. So go back to the idea of virtual social media, where people are interacting with one another in a shared virtual space, and they're embodied 
via some kind of virtual avatar. And now suppose that someone comes up to me and then stabs my virtual avatar. And I experience the pain of being stabbed, even though in the real world, again, I'm physically completely intact. How do we handle virtual crimes of this sort? What should the legal punishment be for a virtual crime of that sort? It's a bit tricky because even though I can mentally experience the pain of actually being hurt, I'm not seriously hurt in the real world because as soon as I unplug from the simulation, my physical body is completely fine. So there's a whole issue of virtual crimes that might merit more discussion when and if virtual reality becomes more mainstream. And this issue of virtual crimes is complicated by the fact that our moral intuitions arguably break down in the context of virtual environments. So to demonstrate what I mean, it's worth saying a few words about a paper called The Gamer's Dilemma by the philosopher Morgan Luck. In this paper, Luck is talking about what you might call weak virtual crimes. A weak virtual crime is a crime committed in a virtual environment where the victim of the crime is not a conscious agent. So, weak virtual crimes would include any crimes that are committed within the context of contemporary video games. If I'm playing Grand Theft Auto and I just decide to go on a shooting rampage or just to plow over a bunch of civilians on the sidewalk with my car, those would be weak virtual crimes because the characters that I'm killing in the game aren't actually conscious, right? They're just non-conscious characters. Or if I'm playing Call of Duty on Xbox Live with one of my friends and I kill my friend's, my friend's character, this would also be a weak virtual crime because the character itself isn't conscious, even though the character is controlled by a conscious agent, namely my friend. So this differs from the kinds of virtual crimes that I was just talking about, which might be labeled strong virtual crimes. Strong virtual crimes are crimes committed in virtual environments where the victim of the crime is actually conscious. So if I'm interacting, if I plug into a simulation and my body is represented by some kind of virtual avatar and I'm interacting with someone else who's plugged into the simulation and whose body is represented by some kind of virtual avatar and that person commits a crime against me and I feel it, that would be a strong virtual crime because I myself am the victim of the crime and I can consciously experience whatever pain might be associated with that crime. So that's the basic distinction between strong and weak virtual crimes. Again, Luck is talking about weak virtual crimes when discussing the gamer's dilemma. And the gamer's dilemma goes like this. On the one hand, virtual murder seems morally permissible. But on the other hand, virtual pedophilia seems morally impermissible. And it's not clear what the moral difference is between these two cases because in neither case is there any actual harm done to real people. So, again, virtual murder here just means any murder that's committed within the context of a contemporary video game, where you're killing someone that's not actually conscious, that doesn't actually feel any pain or anything like that. And virtual pedophilia is the same thing. We're talking about committing an act of pedophilia against some character within a virtual environment which is represented as a child, but no actual child is being harmed in the kinds of virtual pedophilia cases that Luck is describing. Right? It's just the, a representation of the act of pedophilia that is transpiring in a virtual environment. 
And the issue, again, is many video games will include virtual murder, and that seems completely accepted from a societal standpoint. But if there were a video game that featured some kind of representation of virtual pedophilia, that would be universally condemned, and rightfully so. But it's not clear why we have differing moral intuitions when it comes to virtual murder and virtual pedophilia, given that in both cases, no one's actually being hurt. And in the real world, when you're talking about real-world murder and real-world pedophilia, every morally sane person regards these acts as moral atrocities, and rightfully so. But suddenly, when these acts now take place within virtual environments, our moral intuitions seem to break down, where we find one of the acts acceptable and another of the acts not acceptable. So in order to respond to this dilemma, you need to present some argument for why there is a moral distinction between virtual murder and virtual pedophilia. Or in the absence of providing that argument, you need to deny that there's any moral distinction between the two. So one might bite the bullet and say that both virtual murder and virtual pedophilia are morally permissible, or that both are morally impermissible, so that there is no moral difference between the two. But insofar as you think that there is a moral difference, you need to present some argument for why there's a moral difference. And in the article, Luck runs through a bunch of different arguments to this effect, which I won't go through here. I recommend checking out the article. But hopefully this basic point should be clear. These crimes, when taken place in the context of a virtual environment, our moral intuitions about them seem to break down. And even though Luck is just talking about weak virtual crimes, you might wonder whether our moral intuitions break down in a similar way when you're talking about strong virtual crimes. So I don't know, but I think that's an interesting thing to think about. The last thing I want to talk about, the last concern that I want to raise for virtual reality technology, concerns what you might call user isolation. So I already talked about how the coronavirus pandemic has atomized society in an unprecedented manner. With the advent of virtual reality machines, which are increasingly lifelike, people might just choose to spend all of their time, time in these machines as opposed to in the real world, interacting with other people in society. So you can imagine a kind of dystopian future where people don't really interact with one another in shared social spaces whatsoever, but everyone is just indulging in their wildest fantasies in their own personal matrix machines sitting inside their home. That doesn't seem like it's a society that we want to build. There's one thought experiment which speaks to this concern that I have here concerning user isolation. It's what's called the experience machine thought experiment. This is a thought experiment that was originally promulgated by the philosopher Robert Nozick, and I think that it's aged incredibly well with the advent of virtual reality technology. So let me just read a quote from Nozick in which he presents the thought experiment. He says, quote, Imagine a machine that could give you any experience or sequence of experiences that you might desire. When connected to this experience machine, you can have the experience of writing a great poem, or bringing about world peace, or loving someone and being loved in return. You can experience the felt pleasures of these things, how they feel from the inside. You can program your experiences for the rest of your life. 
your imagination is impoverished, you can use the library of suggestions extracted from biographies and enhanced by novelists and psychologists. You can live your fondest dreams from the inside. Would you choose to do this for the rest of your life? Upon entering, you will not remember having done this, so no pleasures will get ruined by realizing that they are machine-produced. End quote. So just to summarize, Nozick here is envisioning some kind of virtual reality technology, which creates experiences which are indistinguishable from real life. And he's presenting you an option. He says, imagine that you could pre-program your ideal life. Say you want to be a neurosurgeon who lives in Hollywood with two kids and a golden retriever. That's your ideal life. You can stipulate that before entering the experience machine. And that life is guaranteed to manifest itself for you. But there are a few caveats here. As Nozick says, you won't remember the choice of going into the experience machine. So even though I might be, generally speaking, psychologically continuous with my past self after going into the experience machine, I won't remember having decided to go into the experience machine. So I won't realize that I'm living in the matrix. So I might choose to go into the experience machine and then wake up the next morning in what seems to be my bed. But in reality, it's just a simulation of my bed. And now I'm just interacting with simulations of my family and friends, right? But it'll seem extremely real, just as real as real life. And the question that Nozick poses is, would you choose to go into the experience machine? And he does say that it's a binary choice, right? You can't choose to spend a hundred years in the experience machine and then unplug and resume your life in the real world. No, either you choose to carry on with your life in the real world, or you choose to spend the rest of your life in the experience machine with no possibility of returning to reality. That's the choice. So it's not like that Rick and Morty episode where you can just plug into a VR simulation, live an entire life in that simulation, and then come out and resume your life. Right? That's not the option. That's not an option for you in this scenario. So Nozick originally formulates this thought experiment as an argument against philosophical hedonism. Philosophical hedonism is a position which says that the best life is the life that involves maximizing pleasure and minimizing pain. According to the philosophical hedonists, you should try to spend your life accumulating as much raw pleasure as you can while minimizing the overall suffering in your life. That's the most valuable thing in life, pleasure in the absence of pain. And the argument against philosophical hedonism based upon the experience machine thought experiment goes like this. The first premise says, if hedonism is true, then you should plug into the experience machine. And the idea here is, a life in the experience machine is by definition a life that maximizes pleasure and minimizes pain because it gets you your ideal life. So if philosophical hedonism is correct, you should plug into the experience machine. But the second premise of the argument says that you should not plug into the experience machine because a life in the experience machine wouldn't be the best life. And then the conclusion says, therefore, hedonism must be false. So the crucial premise is premise two, this idea that you should not plug into the experience machine. And the question is, why does Nozick think this? Why does he think that you shouldn't plug into the experience machine? And the answer is, he says that you shouldn't plug into the experience machine because there are values in life which transcend 
the mere accumulation of pleasure in the absence of pain. Values like truth, knowledge, cognitive contact with reality. All of these things are values that we hold dear, which you don't get in the experience machine. Because when I'm in the experience machine, I don't have contact with truth or cognitive contact with reality or any knowledge whatsoever. I'm deluded at a mass scale. I'm living in the matrix without realizing that I'm living in the matrix. So if you care about those values like truth and knowledge, those are things you don't get in the experience machine. And if those values matter, then maybe it's not worth plugging into the experience machine in the first place. So if you've seen the movie The Matrix, The Matrix provides an explanation as to why Nozick thinks that this second premise is worth taking seriously. The main character in The Matrix, Neo, is living in The Matrix completely deluded. He thinks he's living at the end of the 20th century. And then he's rescued from The Matrix and he becomes aware of his existential predicament, becomes aware of the fact that the real world is actually this dystopian future in which hyper-sophisticated AI extraterrestrials essentially enslave humanity. But the intuition that I think most people have when watching The Matrix is that it was good that Neo was rescued from The Matrix. Even though his life in The Matrix contained more raw pleasure and less suffering than life in the real world, it was worth trading that pleasure for realizing the truth of his situation. Right? It's kind of a pleasure-truth trade-off that we're talking about. And again, most viewers, I think, have the idea that it's worth making this trade-off. It's worth giving up those pleasures of living in the matrix in order to know the existential predicament that you're in. Now, granted, there are, <laughs> there's a character in the movie The Matrix named Cypher who actually takes the opposite line of reasoning. He says that he wants to go back into the matrix to experience the pleasures of being deluded, even if it means giving up knowledge and truth. But again, the intuition that I think the filmmakers want you to have is that Cypher has the wrong idea. He has the wrong philosophy. So again, it's this kind of reasoning which is at play in the second premise of Nozick's argument here. One question that I ask people a lot is, would you choose to go into the experience machine? Why or why not? And let me just give you some reasons that people typically invoke as to why they would not go into the experience machine. One thing that people will say to me is they'll say, Cody, it sounds great, but my ideal life doesn't just consist of nonstop ecstasy. Some of life's best experiences, they'll tell me, come in the aftermath of hardship and pain. You need to go through experiences of hardship in order to come out on the other side a better person. So if a life in the experience machine doesn't contain any hardship or pain, but it's just one nonstop orgasmic experience, that's not something I'm interested in, they'll say. And my response to that is, well, your life in the experience machine need not be one enduring ecstasy. You can pre-program whatever minimal amount of suffering that you need in order to maximize the overall well-being in your life in the machine. Right? So you can pre-program some different hardships along the way that you want to have in your life in order to maximize suffering. So it's not necessarily that there's no experience of suffering in the experience machine. It's whatever minimal amount of suffering is necessary in order to realize your ideal life. 
Another concern that people will raise is they'll say, it sounds great, Cody, but I can't, I'm a social being. I can't just leave my loved ones behind. And if I were to plug into the experience machine, that's essentially what I would be doing. And my response to this is, okay, well, what if I told you I had a replicator button and I could create a psychologically and physically continuous duplicate of you that would remain in the real world such that there would be no perceivable loss for your loved ones? Now, I know this is getting kind of abstract and sci-fi, but just, just bear with me. If you've seen the show Rick and Morty, again, Rick has a kind of replicator button of the sort that I'm talking about here. Rick's daughter, Beth, is tired of her kind of boring family life and wants to go live a different life elsewhere in the universe. So Rick ends up creating a psychologically and physically continuous duplicate of Beth that remains in that remains with her family. And then the real Beth goes and engages in whatever pursuits that she wants to engage in elsewhere. So that's the kind of scenario that I'm imagining here. I can have a replicator button where I duplicate you and this person is exactly like you in every physical and psychological way and they can remain in the real world. So then you can feel free to indulge in your ideal life in the experience machine. Would you now go into the experience machine? A third worry that people will raise is they'll tell me that, well, they wouldn't go into the experience machine because the other simulated beings in the experience machine wouldn't actually be conscious. They would just be kind of like characters in a video game, right? And my response is, well, first, even if the characters in the simulation, the people in the simulation aren't actually conscious, they would seem conscious to you in the simulation. They would seem just as conscious as people seem conscious now in the real world. And there is a sense in which you can never really know whether someone else is conscious. This is what's called the problem of other minds in philosophy. All you ever experience of other people is their behavioral manifestations, which indicate that they're conscious, but you never actually can experience anyone's consciousness other than your own in a direct manner. So you don't really know whether anyone is actually conscious in the real world. So even if people aren't conscious in the experience machine, it would be phenomenologically the same from your perspective. They would seem just as conscious as people do in the real world. So that's one point. But the other point is, it might be that the people in the experience machine are genuinely conscious. If consciousness can be simulated, then simulated beings inside a virtual reality simulation might be conscious. And One last thing that I'll say here, just to end on, is that insofar as you think that we're already living in a simulation, then you might be more inclined to plug into the experience machine. Again, Nozick says that you should not plug into the experience machine because there are values that you don't get in the experience machine. Values like truth, knowledge, and cognitive contact with reality. But if we're already living in a simulation, then we already don't have these things. We already don't have truth or knowledge or cognitive contact with reality. We're already mass deluded if the real world is a simulation. So insofar as you take that line of thought seriously, why not plug into a simulation within a simulation if the simulation within the simulation provides you a better life than this simulation? So I'm invoking what's called the simulation hypothesis here. 
I think this was originally put forth by the philosopher Nick Bostrom. The basic idea behind the simulation hypothesis is actually pretty simple. I might oversimplify the reasoning here, but it basically goes like this. The first premise is we will continue to improve our virtual reality technology to the point that we'll be able to create virtual reality experiences which are indistinguishable from real life. That's the first premise. And then the second premise is that in the future, when we have the technological power to create these experiences, we'll create many of these different simulations. These are what Bostrom calls ancestor simulations. A lot of these simulations will be representations of the past. So now it just becomes an argument from probability, right? In the future, we'll have the capacity to create these ancestor simulations. And at that point, the number of simulated realities will vastly outnumber the real realities, the real world. So probabilistically speaking, it's more likely that we're in one of those simulated realities right now. That's the basic idea. It's a kind of argument from probability, essentially. Now, there are definitely different ways to reject the simulation hypothesis. I think the most controversial premise in the simulation argument is the assumption that consciousness can be simulated. Right? If we're in a simulation right now, then it must be the case that consciousness can be simulated because I know via first-person introspection that I'm conscious. So if we're in a simulation and I know that I'm conscious, it has to be the case that consciousness can be simulated. But this is an extremely controversial assumption because the nature of consciousness is still not well understood from a scientific perspective. By consciousness here, I'm talking about what philosophers often call phenomenal consciousness. So an entity is phenomenally conscious if and only if there's something it's like to be the entity from the inside, or if the entity has some subjective point of view, or if it's sentient, or it has the capacity for feeling. That's what I'm talking about when I'm talking about consciousness. The, the lights are on, so to speak, from the inside. Now, there are certain people who think that consciousness cannot be simulated. For example, biological naturalists like John Searle think that consciousness is unique to biological organisms. But then there are other theorists who go by the name of functionalists or sometimes computationalists who will argue that consciousness can be simulated. They'll say that consciousness is kind of like a software program. And just as software can be run on different hardware, consciousness can be run on different substrate. And it doesn't really matter what the substrate is made of. It doesn't matter if you're talking about silicon substrate of some kind of uh, AI or virtual reality simulation, or it doesn't matter if you're talking about carbon substrate of a biological organism. As long as you have the right functional structure, according to these functionalists, then you get consciousness. Right? So it's, it's the, the function as opposed to the substrate that matters, according to them. And if they're right, and if consciousness can be simulated, then the simulation hypothesis becomes that much more credible. And if the simulation hypothesis is true, then again, you might question whether you shouldn't plug into the experience machine, given that we're already living in a simulation. So again, <laughs> I know I'm getting pretty abstract and sci-fi here, but I do think it's worth thinking about the experience machine thought experiment and the possibility that people will just choose to indulge in virtual worlds if they find those worlds more attractive than real life. So I think I'll end it there. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned.